Hello and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep and not so deep into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. I'm Catherine, I'm the archivist. I'm Tabitha, I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator. Hi Tabby. Hello Catherine. <laughs> Welcome to February's episode. Very exciting. What are we talking about today? Today we're going to talk about like retail and shopping and anything tangentially related to that. Well, I do love shopping, so I'm very excited. I was going to ask you like what are your shopping habits? Are you someone who likes to go shopping as a recreational activity or are you just someone who wants to go to the shops and get whatever you need and then go home again? I like to call myself a professional shopper i'm really really good at shopping and i see it as like a hobby so sometimes i just like to go shopping to look at fashion trends not necessarily because i'm gonna buy things because obviously fast fashion is terrible Mm -hmm. but it gives me ideas for crafting projects okay and it gives me ideas for how i want to change like my uh dressing like what i'm doing my clothing so yeah you're going for inspiration absolutely i love shopping and is it mostly like clothes and fashion and stuff yeah absolutely mm-hmm. clothes shops i'm like completely the opposite because i hate shopping <laughs> and if i need something i will go to the shops and then i will get it and then i'll go home again <laughs> um but let me take you back to the 1960s so it was a time of huge change in the uk there was a large cultural shift happening which included shopping habits and activities of ordinary people really Um, There was far less recreational shopping than there is now. Um, You know, people generally went to buy something at the shop if they needed it. Um, And you could get most things you needed from the local high street, uh, generally speaking. And it was an an outdoor activity. You had to brave um, (laughs) the great British weather. (laughs) Um, So the 1960s saw a consumer boom after the post-war austerity. And we don't really have time to go into like all the factors that contributed to that on the podcast. Um, but it did mean that people had more disposable income. And fashion-conscious teenagers were sort of leading the trends and leading the way in shopping and stuff like that. So nowadays we think nothing of shopping as a leisure activity, like just going to the shopping centre to have a look around, really, mm-hmm. like you were saying that you do. But um, when Milton Keynes was being planned in the late 60s, Remember, it was designated in 1967, and the plan for Milton Keynes was written between 1967 and 1970. So then it was difficult to plan for commercial activity because it was hard to predict like the advances of the future and what shoppers' wants and needs might be. But it was clear that they would need to plan on providing a wide range of choice. So it's really important in a new town. So the population at designation was 40,000 people and they were planning for a new town of up to 250,000. So you're clearly going to need to (laughs) make sure that with your bringing people to live and work in a new place, they need to be able to buy all of the things they're going to need throughout their time, like living and working there. So they were going to have to provide some retail provision. And we've talked a lot about the six goals for the new town and the important one here is freedom of choice. So the Development Corporation wanted residents and visitors 
to have the freedom to choose where they shopped and have a high quality offer to choose from. Balance and variety always also comes into it as well, but they didn't want this choice to be hampered by like arbitrary barriers. For example, I think we've talked previously about how they wanted residents to choose freely rather than only be able to go to shops um, because the transport from where they live is good. They wanted people right. to be able to go wherever they wanted, basically. And we've also talked a little bit about retail in the existing towns and villages. And the corporation highlighted how these shops would provide diversity within the city. It was also important to them that the facilities were improved in order to cater for that increase in population like we've talked about. But the corporation also saw it as an opportunity for those existing businesses to expand and gain more income. If your customer base is going to increase hugely, then that is an opportunity if you want it for your business to um, increase and get more customers and get bigger if it wants to. Mm. The general plan was for the new city centre to be a hub for commercial and recreational activity, including a new shopping development, and also for four district centres to be established. Um, so you had this hierarchy of shops in terms of the main city centre shopping development, which was, was, was providing overarching retail opportunities. Then you've got district centres serving like all four corners of the city. Um, with offers for things you might not want to go into the city centre for. And then you've got local shops, which were often planned around activity centres, which would be serving a couple of grid squares. Mm. So, like, one shop might... To, uh, several grid squares might be able to go to that shop, the residents, and, and see what they wanted. And that's where you can pick up, like, bits and pieces, like milk and newspapers, or... The potatoes you forgot to buy at the big shop like <laughs> I did the other day. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> we really have. Um, so let's drill a little bit deeper into the new city centre and what its purpose was to be in terms of shopping. In the plan for Milton Keynes, which is the master plan document I quote a lot, it says the aim was, quote, to concentrate shops selling goods for which a wide choice in a single place is valued by shoppers. So for example, clothes shops or furniture shops, places that sell a wide variety of options. Even if it's just like a hat shop, they should sell a wide variety of hats, <laughs> not just baseball caps or fedoras. <laughs> the fedora shop? No, I kind of want to go into the fedora shop. <laughs> that sounds fun, doesn't it? I was like desperately trying to think of hats. It's a different type of hat, The yeah. beret hat. The beret I would shop. love a beret shop, you would. don't get me wrong. <laughs> Um, or even if like it's just a chair shop, a, a chair shop that has a wide variety of chairs, armchairs, office chairs, folding chairs, dining chairs, amazing. Um, but the city centre shops should also sell like those standard goods that nearby residents are going to need. Which I assume doesn't include chairs or hats. No, although they do, they will want to go there for their chairs and hats, but they also want to go there for like the other stuff because the local residents in like the central area housing grid squares like um, Bradwell Common or Springfield are going to need to use the city centre as like um, a bit of a district centre cross high street type place as well. Mm. So it's um, 
needs to perform that dual purpose for those people. And Milton Keynes City Centre was always destined to be a destination shopping centre. Um, the master plan highlights Milton Keynes's location as being favourable to a major shopping development. And we've talked previously about how the excellent location of Milton Keynes is good for um, all sorts of things, like attracting businesses, uh, most importantly. Um, so it's location between, you know, London, Birmingham, Oxford, Cambridge, on the M1, on the railway, on the canal, all that kind of stuff. And people in the area at that time had to go up to 25 kilometres for a large town or city centre. But the corporation felt that if they could provide the right high quality offer and experience, people would come to Milton Keynes from outside the area. But we could also retain more of the spending of local residents because they weren't having to go elsewhere. And it was really important for them to think about that economic success so that they could try and ensure sustainability for the retail services they were you know planning they do recognize though and highlight that in order to do this it would require good design um, good promotion and good management so those factors are important as well did they always um, plan to do it indoors as well um, at this general stage I don't think they had a specific idea of what the building would actually be like um, but I will just briefly describe what ended up happening um, as the shopping centre that we know and love today although not quite because it has had a few adjustments <laughs> over time um, so the building itself was designed between 1972 and 1973 which is just a couple of years after the master plan came out so they started thinking about it almost straight away um, and it was designed by the Development Corporation design architects Stuart Mosscrop and Christopher Woodward and it was built between 1975 and 1979. And a lot of people talk about like American style shopping malls when they talk about Milton Keynes shopping building but the design team actually looked to the history of European shopping arcades and drew inspiration from, for example, like the presence of an arcade in Milan and the plan of an arcade in Brussels. And architecturally, the aim was to resemble um, late Mies van der Rohe, who was famous for the international style, which is a style of architecture characterised by things like repetitive modular floor forms, flat surfaces, um, and like a simplicity that rejected like ornaments and fussiness, that type of thing. So you can see how the shopping building in Milton Keynes has these elements. Um, and if you're listening to this and have never seen the shopping building, um, we'll put up a picture, but you can also Google it. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's quite famous. I mentioned some adjustments and like here's just a couple off the top of my head that I could think of. So when it first opened, the shopping centre had no doors. So it was just, um, obviously it had walls where the shops are, but the entrances, they didn't have doors on them. Oh, that's and weird. <laughs> so there were a lot of complaints about the wind because uh, uh, the city centre is on the highest point of the designated area, and so it can get very windy up there. So they put some doors on after people complained that it was too windy and cold. 
Uh, the part where Marks and Spencer is now used to be City Square, um, but the building, the shopping building, was extended and most of City Square was built over. There used to be a fountain in Queen's Court, but they got rid of that. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, it was a big square fountain. It was really, really pretty. Um, it used to kind of uh, go over um, in a really nicely artistic way and stuff like that, but I don't think they wanted to maintain it and be responsible for like the health and safety stuff surrounding it. And <laughs> obviously the new bit, or Midsummer Place, or Into, or whatever it's called now, um, that was something uh, that was not original. Uh, and when we say new, um, I think it was constructed around the turn of the millennium, so it's like 23 years new. <laughs> but we all still call it the new bit. Um, it's not actually a part of the shopping building, it's completely separate, not physically connected, and it's under completely separate management. The original shopping building was given grade two listing in 2010, and in its listing is described as, quote, the outstanding post-war retail development in England. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so that's a claim to fame, isn't it? <laughs> um, and before we move on, um, because the history of LGBTQ plus people is still so hidden, I want to point out that Christopher Woodward, who passed away recently, was a part of the LGBTQ plus community and was civilly partnered with a man from 2006 until his death last September. So one of the outstanding post-war retail developments in England was co-designed by a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Nice. Now let's talk a bit about the district centres. If we remember, there were to be four and Bletchley's High Street, Queensway, was identified as appropriate to be one with some adjustments and improvements. And the city centre was also identified as a district centre for its surrounding residents. The other two were planned to serve the east and west of the city, um, but later they also added and decided that Stony Stratford was going to serve as a district centre. We talked about that in the last episode. What we'd recognise now are Kingston and Westcroft as fulfilling that district centre role. And it's not until you look on a map that you see just how east and west they are. They're like literally right on the edges of the designated area. So we are kind of serving all four corners of the city, um, pretty much. And you have supermarkets at both. You have the specialist shops and some restaurants or fast food outlets. So people have a choice of where they can go. Like, you know, they might say, I want to go to the gaming shop at Kingston or I might need the pet food shop at Westcroft. So they've got their choice of where they want to go for things. And there have been a couple of interesting developments in retail habits that the Development Corporation could not have like accounted for or predicted, um, but that Milton Keynes was flexible enough to adapt to. So the design of Milton Keynes was always meant to be adaptable and flexible so that it could um, change with the times and change with things that they, like we were saying here, couldn't predict. And one of these developments is the idea of the retail park, where you've got um, shops that want a, quite a big space to operate out of. They've got um, you know, a huge variety of stuff, 
um, big stuff um, and they just need a bigger space. So Milton Keynes has a couple, most recognisably at Winter Hill and Rooksley. But interestingly, these are not very far away from each other. And I actually noticed and realised on the map the other day that they're just either side of the railway station. Um, so they are sort of central, but not part of the city centre. And existing in that kind of unrecognised part of the corporation's hierarchy between the specialist shops and city centre ease of access. So that's quite interesting. Another development is online retail, which obviously has been huge this century, but <laughs> would have been like nowhere in the imagination <laughs> of the original planners. Um, so Milton Keynes has been able to adapt to this and our capacity for industrial zones has helped Milton Keynes play a part in this retail boom too. So that maximises our excellent transport links because we have distribution centres that are in those industrial zones on the outskirts of the city that are by you know major transport um, highways and things like that. And the last one is robot delivery. <laughs> so who knew that would be a thing? Um, the, the Starship's robots autonomous delivery service was launched in Milton Keynes in 2018 and makes use of like our networks of paths and redways to deliver food and packages straight to people's doors. So if you've never if you've never seen them, they're like little white sort of robots on wheels and they just trundle about and uh, when they get to where they're going, you can go out and you can get your stuff. And they're so cute. They are cute. Have you had robot delivery? No, I can't. I don't know where to get the robot oh. delivery from. Like, what did you have to go on their website and be like, send me a robot? There is, <laughs> there is an app, but actually I think it's only in certain parts of Milton Keynes at the moment. So where I live in Bletchley, you can get it. But I actually have never ordered robot delivery. I know where I lived in Stoney, you could get it. But I don't know if where I live now. Because yeah. I haven't seen them around my street. No. Um, I remember we did have one, oh, I think I said last <coughs> Christmas, where it played your little Christmas tune when you opened it, which was good. Um, but we've been trying to get a robot for the collection, haven't we? Um, but to no success. We would love one. So if anyone out there can hook us up with a robot we would love to have one even if it's broken we need like a social media campaign for it yes give us a robot give us a broken and we can robot. we could do a vote to name it yeah what would we name it but that's the thing we get listeners to give us suggestions for names i want to suggest a name but you can also <laughs> suggest a name i have to think of one first <laughs> um so that's so that's the story of retail in the new town and what they were planning and developing. Um, so hopefully that was interesting. It's really interesting uh, to me to think about this idea that, you know, people look at the Milton Keynes shopping centre and they go, it's like an American mall. For someone who lives in America, one of the things that you notice about the very successful malls, so to name a few in North America, you've got the Edmonton Mall, which is like one of the biggest in the world or something, King of Prussia, which was half an hour from where I lived, which I think at some point had like the most shops in a shopping center in the world. Oh, wow. Um, and like there's one up in Boston. And one of the things about these big shopping centers in America is that they are 
the epitome of ostentatious. You're supposed to go in and be greeted by fountains, foliage, it's all very over the top. Um, the, they, there are like fancy parts of malls where they've got all of the designer shops mm. which suddenly have like marbling and things everywhere. Mm. And obviously the key thing about Milton Keynes, it's not that, it is that modular architecture. Mm. And so it's very interesting to see that that style is not copied but yet you get a similar thing at the end of that you get an indoor shopping area yeah. um the other thing that always really strikes me about the difference um is that m basically every american mall has a second floor yes and milton Keynes does not and that's that's really interesting because that is much more of like a european thing to not have okay. that second story yeah. Um, but yeah, because when I first came here, I thought, oh yeah, it's just like an American mall. And then I went, hang on, no, this oh, isn't. <laughs> I can see these differences. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, where you're describing there makes me think of the Trafford Centre, because that's very ostentatious mm -hmm. and it has a second floor and it's all very um, sort of in that kind of style. And it's very different to uh, the Centre MK. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So Tavi, what have you got to, for us to talk about today? Well, as per usual, I'm going to talk about the Romans. Um, but before I started my bit, I wanted to to carry on from the discussion about Milton Keynes and its its retail space because the way Milton Keynes was designed from listening to what you've talked about and all the podcasts we've had is it's very much how the Romans used to design towns. Oh, really? Um, so the Romans did not make their towns organically. When the, the army came in and they took over an area, the first thing they would do was set up an oppidum or, or a village town, basically. And they'd build two roads, one that went north-south, one that went east-west. Okay. Quadranted an area into four. And then they would just say, right, that's where the latrines are going. That's where the houses are going. That's where the shops are going. That's where this is going mm -hmm. and everything like that. And all of that would be laid out before anything was put in after those two roads. Oh, so they would have a strategic plan. Yeah. And so thinking about how, you know, the, the they were deciding where the shopping districts were going to go and how that was going to best benefit. It's very, very Roman. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting because also we talked about how medieval towns kind of just grew up um, like organically and how there was no generally no kind of thinking behind it really and no outside the manor system there's very little yeah so they're a little bit inefficient in a lot of ways but the romans were a very efficient bunch and then when they were doing the post-war new towns it was a similar exercise in in you know how can we design the best city mm. and the most efficient city yeah, that's really absolutely. interesting it's very cool to think about. Yeah. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I'm not going to talk about Roman town building because actually we don't have any uh, fancy built Roman towns. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to get just a bit conceptual, so bear with me till the end. Okay. And I'll, um, <laughs> I'll make it work, I promise. I'm excited. Uh, so in regards to the archaeology evidence for Roman Milton Keynes, we have no physical evidence of retail spaces, mm. no shops, no tavernas, nothing. Um, so we have structures associated with retails, um, mostly, but most archaeology about buying things is actually ephemeral or tangential. Yeah. Um, so we're not saying that they didn't have shops, just we didn't really have any evidence for them in the area. Yeah, no physical evidence. But here's the problem, right? We know it has to exist. We know these shops have to be somewhere because you have to physically go and buy things. Um, so whether it's a bartering service, a traveling merchant, we know for a fact that all throughout history, humans have always traded and bought things 
So how do we track that? If you don't have the physical space, if you don't, if you can't say this is clearly a shop, mm. how do you actually work out how people are shopping and where people are shopping in the ancient world? Um, so one way to track it is we can follow money. So we can follow coinage, which is a really tangible thing in archaeology. Yeah. Um, so my fun fact of the day is, did you know that one of the oldest coins in Britain comes from Bletchley? <gasps> How old is it? So it's currently held at the British Museum and it dates from the 2nd century BCE. And it is a gold stator minted in Trier in France, which depicts a head of Apollo on it. Apollo. Yeah. So for this coin to get to Bletchley meant that either someone from France came over to Britain and exchanged it for something, mm -hmm. or someone from Britain went over to France and exchanged something for it. Yeah. It doesn't just magically appear. It wasn't washed up on the shores of, of Britain to no. be found later. So second century is like the <coughs> one hundred second century when? Second century BC. Oh, okay. So that's before zero. Yeah, absolutely. So there are no Romans in Britain at this time. This is fully oh. Iron Age. Um, so either way... This coin alone indicates that there has to be some sort of trade route between Britain and the rest of Europe during the Iron Age. Otherwise, how do you get a coin that is made in France over into the British Isles? There has yeah. to be something. Um, so as with this second century coin, the first coins in Britain were the result of overseas trade, mostly with France. Mm -hmm. um, that trade route probably extended further, but it was things that came through France and then into, into Britain. And there had to be enough coins going around because shortly after this point in the second century, coins start to be made in Britain. So this isn't a one-off situation of, oh, you know, there's a handful of coins, it, it doesn't mean anything. There has to be enough trade existing that the Iron Age people living in Britain go, oh, we need to make our own coinage. Mm. There's a whole, there's a system yeah, coming, isn't there? there has to be a system. Um, now these coins are still copying designs from mainland European coins, but after a while, the British coins do start to show names of British rulers as well as they start to experiment with their own designs and ideas. Okay. Um, and that tells us that coins are obviously being used consistently enough that they're not only being copied, but they're now trying to develop their own coinage. Yeah. Um, and we do have a few dubious Iron Age coins in our own collection. Dubious? Uh, well, so, so we've got a nice gold one from like 40 BCE. And um, we know about the second century one. But some of our Iron Age coins are very poorly preserved. Okay. So they're dubious in that if you squint and you tilt your head to the left, it looks like an Iron Age coin. But realistically... If you tilt your head to the right... Yeah, it, you're not really sure. So... <laughs> Um, it's because some of our coins are so badly preserved okay, that yeah. for Roman ones it's easier. You look for a head, the outline of a head, and you're like, mm, okay, it's a Roman coin. For an Iron Age coin, you, you know, they've got ears of corn or boars or bulls on them. It's much harder to work out what those shapes are. Yeah. So you're kind of looking at it going, oh, it could be a Roman figure of a god could be a bull i don't know <laughs> so i say dubious in that they are provenanced and they are definitely from here and from a roman yeah. period but whether they're actually iron age coins or not is up for debate yeah. um but since iron age coins are scarce compared to you know roman coins 
um, it's likely that Iron Age commerce wasn't actually reliant on coinage as its sole system of purchase. Oh, right. Iron Age communities in Britain, um, and certainly Milton Keynes, would have been aware of coin currency, trading with mainland Europe and even trading amongst themselves, but they also likely would have had a trading system in place. So, you know, I'll give you X amount of meat for Y amount of grain and so on and so forth. Um, alternatively, it is possible that uh, the Iron Age people living in Britain used currency bars. So currency bars are a really cool thing in the ancient world where it's basically like a block of iron or a block of copper. Mm. And sometimes they have markings on them, which like splits it up into, into even amounts. Or uh, sometimes they're shaped like cow hides. It's very weird. Okay. Um, and these could have been exchanged for, okay, well, this weighs this much copper. You're going to give me whatever the value of this copper is in foodstuffs, mm -hmm. basically. Um, there's an interesting theory about currency bars also um, being relevant for kind of working out the price for weapons. Because if you think about it, if you've got a steel currency bar, an iron currency bar, you can turn that into a sword, yeah. right? So that means one sword is worth this much of this. And then because you know how much that iron is worth versus cows or grain or whatever, you now know the value of what you can make out it's of that. Kind of setting that standard. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. Um, I, I, think we, I think we know that currency bars are a thing. It's just we don't know the scope of their use compared yeah. to coinage, compared to just trading. Um, but we've got lots of evidence for currency bars in like Bronze Age and Iron Age Rome and things like that. So we know currency bars are, I think they're really cool. I love currency bars. <laughs> um, but from 50 BC onwards, we have plenty of coins. Okay. Um, and this is interesting because obviously the first attempted conquest of Britain is by Julius Caesar in 51 BCE. Mm -hmm. And after this point, Iron Age coins are heavily influenced by Roman coins. So we're seeing an influx of that culture kind of coming in and going, no, look, coinage is so great, right? Uh, we start to see ruler names on coins, portraits, and even Latin inscriptions, which is great for us because we can read Latin inscriptions. Yep. Iron Age, totally different ballgame. Um, so we have a few coins from this period at the museum. These are some of our less dubious coins, okay. um, including two figures like Cunobelin, and Tascio Venus. Who are they? Uh, they are Iron Age rulers of tribes oh. in this area. Um, so they are they are some cool dudes. So again, we've got bulls, boars, ears of grain. We even got a uh, victory goddess on one of them. So that's oh, obviously yeah. super Roman, right? Yeah. Um, and we've got one that's got a horseman on it. That's really cool. Uh, and some of these are more Roman themed or influenced by others. Like a victory goddess, for instance, is like super Roman. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why why do we start seeing more coinage after Caesar tries and fails to, you know, invade Britain? Because it's interesting that he failed, but yet still influenced. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those things of, you know, he failed to, to subjugate, but what he did do is he put, he put a foothold in mm. Britain, right? Um, we know that the Romans saw Britain as a really good place to get things like tin, and also a great source of seafood. We know that Iron Age Brits did not consume a lot of seafood. Mm -hmm. but the Romans love seafood so they're like it's an island 
it's great we can just get a bunch of seafood and they don't care about it so they're going to sell it to us for cheap surrounded by seafood absolutely and the iron age brits seemed really interested in roman um products like olive oil and wine and things like that but as with any you know fascist power hungry state uh the romans eventually decided that trading wasn't good enough and they wanted to just you know take over britain so yeah they they were quite sneaky about it as well because the tribes there's no unified britain in the iron age right they're not one country it's tribes who own areas and they're all the tribes are always fighting with each other so you know rome turns to one of the tribes and goes well we could help you you know you could you could pay us to come over with our military and we'll we'll help you guys out and of course the tribe's like yeah fantastic and then the military never leaves and then suddenly they've raised your village to the ground and so on and so forth so it was only a matter of time before that was going to happen um unfortunately we don't know what the iron age brits actually thought about coinage um, we know that they adopted it, so possibly a positive light, but we don't have any written evidence of them going, oh no, I don't I don't actually like this, I preferred our system yeah. before and things like that. Um, but during the Roman con- period when Rome is actively trying to conquer the rest of Britain, we do know that coinage becomes a lot more important because our amount of coins in the archaeological record goes up significantly. Um, Roman Milton Keynes has the most coinage than any other period represented in the archaeological record, either before oh, wow. and after. So if you look at our amount of Roman coins versus our medieval coins, we have way more Roman coins. How many do we have? Do you know? Okay, so before we got everything from Magiavinium, mm-hmm. we had about 2,000 coins in our entire collection. 800 of those were from Bancroft. Okay. I have not individually counted all of the Magiavinium coins yet, but looks like we have about a thousand six hundred plus coins from Magiavinium, including the hoards. Wow. Yes. <laughs> so So we had eight hundred Roman coins before? No, from Bancroft. We from had Bancroft. probably about a thousand two hundred before and then eight hundred coins from other periods. Wow. Yeah. So Magiavinium alone has more coins than all of our Roman sites combined. Um, Magiavinium was kind of a big military and trading centre, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah. Why? So Magiavinium is is quite interesting um, because it's the auxiliary fort that gets built along Watling Street, and then it becomes sort of our first version of a vicus or a trading settlement. So when the Romans come into Britain. Um, and the British realise that they can't get rid of them particularly easily. They go, okay, well, let's just get these suckers for all they're worth, right? And the Roman soldiers are going through and, you know, their shoes are breaking, their weapons are breaking because they're marching for three months on campaign before setting anything up. And so some Iron Age Brits and some uh, Roman merchants actually come over and basically Mm. set up like a... Uh, traveling market that follows the Roman army round. So, you know, you break your shoe, you don't have time to fix it. You go to the guy who's a shoemaker, you go, okay, here's money, fix my shoe. Now, as forts start to be set up, these marketplaces become sedentary and they grow up around the forts. And then eventually the fort and the market basically become one thing and you end up with a marketplace town, which is probably what happened at Magiavinium and why we have so many coins. (laughs) So many. Um, So that's quite interesting. Um, Unfortunately, we we don't have too much like remains at Magiavinium um, in regards to like structures, but we know that obviously 
everything was traded out of Magivinium for this area. You're looking at pottery. It's uh, people who are selling pottery in this area are selling it in Magivinium and then it's going out from there. People are coming into Magivinium and trading in Milton Keynes from that point. Okay. So in regards to the the special Roman Milton Keynes uh, district centre, it is Magivinium. <laughs> Excellent. Um, one thing I thought was quite interesting is um, I wanted to talk a bit about actually what Roman currency is mm -hmm. because we talk about oh yeah we've got all of these coins like what does that mean what is the value of that um, so Roman currency had bronze silver and gold coins and the values of these changed drastically over the period of occupation um, so I'm just going to give quite a general kind of measure of what these coins really mean because if you're looking at first versus third century it's going to be completely different because yeah. the economy collapses like 12 times in between that right um, so You've got uh, two bronze coins, which were called as, A-S. Uh, they are worth one bronze dupondius. And one bronze dupondius is worth a bronze cistercius. Four cistercii are worth a silver denarius. And 25 denarii were worth one aureus, which was the gold coin. So there are other coins that show up, but that's getting way too complicated. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. Um, so what does this actually mean? Um, you could buy a pound of bread for one as. So for the lowest quantity of coinage, that's that's your bread. Okay. Or a liter of cheap wine. Um, maybe you don't want it because it's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for reference, between Caesar and Domitian, so that's when we're being invaded by the Romans, mm -hmm. a soldier's yearly pay was 225 denarii. Okay. So you could buy a lot of bread. For yeah. <laughs> they need that bread marching up and down absolutely um building roads yeah income's quite a difficult thing to talk about outside of soldiers pay because a lot of people are subsistence farmers they're yeah. relying on industry and craft right so we use soldiers pay as like a um a way to measure if the economy is good at a point in roman history because it's standard across the empire it's yeah. the first thing that changes and we don't you know we don't have ledgers we don't have records of you know, what joe the farmer's earning yeah well we know we know what marcus the the centurion's earning so it's, it's not a, it's not a great measure but it's all we have it's all you have yeah um but yeah for everyone else basically income was based on how much product you were able to make and sell um interestingly the presence of the army again was a big deal because not only did they need repairs but also they were a big consumer of local food and things like pottery you don't think about the fact that you need to do food preparation as a roman soldier yeah. so the amount of bowls you're going to need is going to go up and then if you break them you need to buy more bowls yep. so even things as simple as pottery was something that they were still getting a lot of so when you look at our local pottery sites caldecott and wavenden gate they're supplying the local community but also possibly the soldiers as they're coming up and down watling street going yeah. through maggie Avinium. so they get a bit of a boom whenever the military are coming through exactly yeah um it's quite interesting because elsewhere in the roman empire we know that uh people who owned villas had shop fronts on their villas oh. um but there's no evidence of that here um so then the question is is that is magiavinium our only actual retail place yeah. in in local milton Keynes? now the possibility is is that if you're in wavenden gate and you need a new bowl, you go down to the potter who's making bowls and you go, I need a new bowl, here's some money, and that's the end of it. 
but it's that question of what you were talking about with Milton Keynes with the local centres versus the the district centre, right? Like, mm -hmm. okay, you might have a potter in your village, so you can walk over and get it. But say you need a bronze smith. If you don't have a bronze smith in your village, you're going to have to walk all the way over to Magiavinium to get whatever bronze thing that you need or need repaired or something like that. You think yes. about um, toiletry sets in the Roman period, they're bronze. You don't have a local guy who's making them. Okay. You've, you've got to go to get one. Um, so it's quite, it, it is quite interesting to see that formation of a market town and how that really affects the local area. Because all of our Roman settlements, aside from our, even our villas, actually, I was going to say aside from Bancroft, but that was an Iron Age settlement. Um, they're obviously producing things locally and, and consuming them locally. But they have to have a need for things outside of their area. Otherwise, Magiavinium simply wouldn't turn into a market yeah. town. It would stay as a fort. Yeah. So that that is our evidence, even though there's no actual evidence of shops or a or a, even a market square. That has to be our evidence for the fact that people locally are needing to get things from from other areas of Britain or even other areas of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And we know that we've got things being traded from other areas because the the patera from Olney um, that uh, we have in 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 Milton Keynes comes from Italy. Yeah. The marble cockerel that they found at Bancroft Villa is Italian marble. The pine cone from Bancroft Villa is Italian. Mm -hmm. So we know that this trade route exists and we have to see Magiavinium as our, our regional area that all that stuff is going into and then being traded out of. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like the things you can get locally or hyper-locally are things that people A, need really often, but also you can get in the local area and then you've got things that are people need a bit less often that you can still get in the local area but you might need to go to the bigger sort of village or whatever to get it yeah and then you've got like those international things or even national things that are kind of seen as maybe luxury items that or really um high-end items that you know you don't need and you can't get locally but are more of a status thing mm. that richer people are kind of like oh yeah we'll, we'll trade internationally because that shows people that we have that status and things like that so yeah absolutely interesting yeah it's trying to find that evidence in archaeology and sometimes the physical remains just they don't help you no. you have to look at elsewhere and tangentially related things yeah it's but, connecting things together isn't it yeah absolutely but while you were saying your your uh the thing about the district centers i was thinking oh my gosh magiavinium is a district center yeah, absolutely <laughs> and actually like we've gone very ancient and new and if you're kind of wondering oh what did they do in between um then like the street of shops at the museum is a really good place to visit um because it's got like an old um, Victorian sort of shop fronts and things like that and it will show you retailing sort of in between those times um, and so yeah there's still some really kind of um, old shops in the area mm. Stoney and Bletchley and things like yeah, that absolutely. so you've got Odell's and um, maybe Sid Telfer's in New Bradwell and uh, Fabric World in Bletchley is great. Love that's Fabric quite, World. <laughs> that's a good like one that's been there for a while and stuff. So, yeah, if you're kind of wondering what's happening in between the Romans and, and the Development <laughs> Corporation, yeah, come and come and visit and absolutely. have a look. This has been really interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. <laughs> uh, next month is March. Oh my God, it's flying by. 
It's March already? Yeah, the year is flying Oh my by. goodness. <laughs> well, now, at the moment, it's only the beginning of February, but That's next true. month is March. Oh my gosh. What are we talking about next month? I think we're doing a thing about women. It's Women's History Month, so... <gasps> yes, it is. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see you next month. See you next month. That's it for this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website, miltonkeynesmuseum.org.uk.